This business news podcast is supported by Hopgood Gannam Lawyers. Our knowledge and expertise has been delivering exceptional outcomes for nearly 50 years. All the latest business news from WA, delivered daily. At close of business, news briefing. Good afternoon, it's Jacinta Burton with your Wednesday afternoon headlines. Linus Rare Earths has announced plans to substantially expand production capacity at its Mount Weld mine, adding to a big investment it's already making in downstream processing in the goldfields. It will invest a total of $500 million at Mount Weld in a bid to accelerate and increase its expansion. The higher production at Mount Weld will feed into its Kalgoorlie Rare Earths processing facility under construction at a cost of $500 million. This includes some upgrades at its refinery in Malaysia. The expansion projects are designed to meet increased demand for rare earths elements, including those for batteries used in electric vehicles and wind farms. The Mount World expansion will target feedstock production capacity of 12,000 tonnes per annum by at least 2024. The project is expected to create up to 300 jobs during construction and over 100 ongoing operational jobs in the Goldfields region. Construction of the project, which is fully funded from cash flow, is expected to begin early next year. And in other news, Joondalup Mayor Albert Jacob has lost his bid to have the six complaints made against him to the Standards Panel thrown out, with the Administrative Tribunal affirming his conduct was confronting and antagonistic. Last year, the Local Government Standards Panel found Mr Jacob had committed six minor breaches of the Local Government rules after two complaints were launched against him, including one by a fellow councillor. The complaints centred around Mr Jacob's conduct at several council meetings in 2020, including comments made in response to rumours a local reserve was being acquired for commercial purposes and changes to the council rates. But the Mayor called for a review of the decision by the state's Administrative Tribunal, requesting the panel's findings be set aside and replaced by an order dismissing the complaints. In his submission, Mr Jacob alleged the panel had made a series of errors in fact in both complaints and argued his comments were fair, factual and neutral when considering the context of the council debate. Mr Jacob contended the panel's claim that he unilaterally decided whether a motion was justified was offensive. Further, he claimed the panel's oblique references indicated it was conducting itself in a way that fell well short of the standard imposed on him. But the tribunal has since affirmed both findings, saying that the comments at the centre of the dispute were confronting and antagonistic. The matter has now been adjourned for a directions hearing later this year. And finally, Chalice Mining's Julemar Discovery is tipped to herald a brand new metals province in WA, but its location within a state forest could put the social licence of green metals to the test. Speaking on the final day of Diggers and Dealers 2022, Chalice Managing Director Alex Dorsch reaffirmed the potential of the company's advanced flagship asset. Considered one of the largest nickel discoveries in decades and the largest platinum group elements find in Australia, Mr Dorsch advocated that Julemar's possible role in future supply dynamics had gained attention amid a shifting geopolitical environment. Broadly, he maintained that Julemar was a unique asset in a global context and that its contained future-facing metals of platinum, nickel, copper and cobalt would be central in decarbonisation efforts. Speaking to the media, Mr Dorsch acknowledged the project's location, which encroaches on land in the state Julemar Forest, 70 kilometres northeast of Perth, would prove a test case for mining's social licence. 
Chalice was cleared to undertake low-impact drilling over a 10-kilometre strike length at the site in May earlier this year, after some opposition from environmental groups. Chalice mining shares were up 6.25% today to trade at $4.93. And coming up next, senior editor Mark Pownall discusses some of the highlights from his Wealth Advisors feature, including recent market troubles, national trends and the appeal of working from Cottesloe. Hopgood Gannam Lawyers is one of Australia's leading independent legal advisory firms. For nearly 50 years, our knowledge and expertise has delivered exceptional outcomes for our clients, giving them the most accurate, appropriate and usable guidance. We invest time and expertise to build trusted alliances with our clients and to understand their commercial drivers, which enables us to deliver over and above what a traditional legal firm offers. To find out what we can do for you, visit hopgoodgannam.com.au. Hopgood Gannam Lawyers. Exceptional outcomes. Up until the 2020s, it was unusual for fund management to sit in the private realm. A lot changed through the pandemic. Iron ore royalties filled Andrew Forrest and Gina Reinhart's private investment vehicles, while WA Super was subsumed by national player Aware Super. Senior editor Mark Pownall has written extensively about this for the feature of our latest edition, and he joins me now. Mark, thanks for being here. Thank you. There are a lot of details I skipped over before, and you note in your lead article for this feature that the rise of family offices has been by stealth. Tell our listeners about what you found in your research. Yeah, look, I think there's just been a big change in the last 20 years, maybe even in the last 10. Uh, As you alluded to there, there's really three types of fund management, if you want to call it that, possibly even four, but let's, we've got the kind of super funds that we're, we're used to and we hear a lot about and a lot of them have been around for a long time. And then you've got uh, private fund managers who manage equities or put money in property or whatever and they, uh, they've they been open to private investors to put money in and, and often very rich people put big lumps of money through them as well. And then you've got what I would consider a third class which is Um, where people have so much wealth that they actually employ their own investment managers, their own fund managers to run things. Because generally speaking, fund managers are pretty expensive people to have on board, especially have the best and to get the diversity you want. So you're better off being in a collective, which is what a super fund is. And I did mention a fourth one. There's sort of venture capitalists out there that tend to be smaller but can be pretty big and probably really just represent that second class I talked about, but but they're slightly different. So just the point of, that I've sort of learnt from this article is in Western Australia, and we're talking specifically in Western Australia here, there's been a transition where the number of people and the amount of money they were managing at the very top of the tree here as fund managers in the super fund industry has disappeared so we've gone from 10 or 11 large-ish funds in WA to two, uh, and even the second of those is quite small. And in that corresponding period, as you alluded to, we've had the rise of this super rich. And they, there were a few, but now there's a lot more, and the funds they manage and therefore bring in in-house staff to manage for them are much greater. And Lawrence Escalante is the new kid on the block, as you write in your article. He has wealth estimated to total $3 billion. Yeah, so so he's a kind of, you mentioned WA Super, which was a, a moderately sized super fund which basically merged with Aware Super and the management of that's been taken out of WA. And almost in that same period, Lawrence Escalante has made, it's estimated, around $3 billion uh, through his virtual gaming world, which 
obviously, and and it's producing large, large dividends. It's not wealth that's tied up so much in a large iron ore asset. You know, it's actually cash flow. You know, is 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 massive for the size of the the asset he's got, and so he has been the latest to kind of, and that's kind of like almost like that rebalancing. He joins the forests and the and Gina Reinhardt and a whole bunch of other very rich people in having a family office. He's done something a bit different as well, um, and it's very opaque and difficult to exactly discern what's taking place here but there's a there's another group so he's got his thing called lance east office which is his family office and then there's another group called spitfire family office which is called a multi-family office and in effect will manage the money of other people's family offices and help them establish and they are helping him establish lance east and it's very hard to differentiate those two because they often have the same people managing both Um, but my understanding is Spitfire is a separate entity that's not controlled so much by Escalante as just serves Escalante but I think if you dig deeper the people behind Spitfire have made their money through investing or somehow being connected with VGW and Escalante. I want to ask you a bit about uh, the performance of major funds here in WA, but before we get to that, I want to talk about superannuation because there are only two super funds run out of WA now, and you spoke to one of the major players in both of them. Yes. So Frank Cironi, uh, he's on the board of both of both GESBY, which is the Government Employees Superannuation Board and represents, in effect, state government employees. And it's huge. I mean, it's around $37 billion at the moment. Um, and then he is also on the board of... Well, he calls it FISBY, but it's the uh, Fire and Emergency Services Superannuation Board, uh, and FES Super, I think, is also known as. Now, it's about a $900 million fund, so it's much smaller. And in the context, I think when WA Super got merged into AWARE, I think it was at around 4 or $5 billion. So FES Super is a small fund and probably is unlikely to be a survivor except for its history and its structure, means that it's not really something that other funds can consume uh, and get great efficiencies out of being consumed. And similarly for FES super members, there's not a lot of advantage to them to being managed or being part of a bigger fund because it's a defined benefit scheme and it has uh, very generous things like insurance and and some other stuff attached to it because it's firemen involved. There's risk they may not get to the retirement age before they need their funds. So we have these two funds in existence, but uh, where I think Frank Scaroni is really interesting is he has been on several boards uh, where the mergers have taken place. And it goes right back to 2011 when he was on one of the major boards, uh, one of the major um, super funds that got subsumed into the East and really started this whole ball rolling in WA. And then he was on another one, which was the Coal Industry Board, whatever, representing the Collie Coal Miners. So he's actually not just seen it happen from a distance, he's been on the board as some of these super funds have either merged or just stepped off and, you know, helped them get ready for merger before he stepped off and things like that. So um, it's it's fascinating. And, and there were just so many of these. It was quite a significant industry here. And yet now, today, today it's just not. 
From Collie to Cottesloe now, I want to ask you a bit about why it is that fund managers are so attracted to this beachside suburb. Why are they focusing or why are they basing their services out of this suburb? Yeah, look, it is fascinating. We did actually take a look at this 10 years ago, and I, and I suspect the reason is because a lot of that family wealth is sitting there. Well, okay, there's two reasons. The family wealth is sitting there, and a lot of these fund managers who are pretty well off themselves, live there. So first of all, 10 years ago, there were a bunch of very boutique fund managers who had probably, uh, after the GFC, decided it was time to come back and live a different life. Uh, and why would, if you came back to Perth, why wouldn't you live in Cottesloe? And by then, technology was available where you could run a decent fund uh, out of Cottesloe. And some of those were in all sorts of things like currency hedging and things like that. Fast forward 10 or 11 years and the circumstances appear to have changed in the sense that a lot of those very small boutiques have disappeared, I can't find them or they're not that noticeable and in their place are quite sizeable private fund managers who again sit in and around this area where there are also some very, uh, some oldish and new family offices. Uh, So the wealth management is getting closer to where the wealth is and the wealth managers are getting closer to where they want to live and possibly to each other. I mean, there's that old idea that if you're going to set up a a, a retail store, you go and set up near the competitor because that's where the foot traffic's going to be. That's where people come to find the goods. And it's the same with these guys. So they're all getting in the same place. And again, technology allows them to do that. And it's the trend has continued Uh, has accelerated, I think. So in the last couple of years, and even literally in the last six months, some major fund managers have moved into the area. Talking about performance now, June was a difficult month for fund managers. And as you note in your lead piece, it was difficult finding people who were actually willing to speak on record about the past year as a result of that. I mean, look, to be fair, I was chasing people right on, you know, just before June 30 and then right after June 30. And if you haven't had a great year, it's a reasonable excuse to say, oh, look, I haven't ordered my fund yet and I don't know the numbers and I don't want to give you false numbers and that that sort of thing. So I had a little bit of that. But I think generally, you're right, June was terrible for the market in general and most of the funds that we looked at outperformed the market. But they don't like to... it's It's this strange psychology of investors that no one wants to lose money and they see that if they're down 2% or 4%, with their funds, why did they give it to that fund manager? But if they'd, I mean, I guess if they'd stuck it in the bank, they might have even got 1% or something like that. But if they'd left it in a, generally in the market or with a broader, bigger industry, you know, like a, a normal super fund, they would have probably have lost more. So in a sense, their money was better off and they still held assets that are likely to rise because, you know, the the equities markets generally over time prove to outdo having your money in cash. That's why people do it. Now, I am talking specifically here about equities because that is the stuff that's very much you can find, you generally know on June 30 or July 1 what you've got and it's much more comparable. Whereas there are a lot of other fund managers that are in some very different things that cannot be so easily compared. And we already know industry funds have a lot of assets that, you know, they mark to market them on June 30, but they're long, you know, infrastructure assets that may have a payout that's a lot a lot longer in time. And quite the same with um, private investment funds. They may have long-term plays, you know, whether it's in property or whatever, where 
you know, the, the movement of the market over one month doesn't matter. But nevertheless, the market was tough. And for a basically a bunch of people who say, hey, give me your money and I'll do better than the market, it's, it obviously irks them to produce any loss. Uh, it's just one of those things. They don't like it and you can see it and sense how difficult it is for them. But on a positive note, you did compile a list of the best performing fund managers for the article. Can you tell me who tops the list? I didn't do the best. I just did all of them that I could find. And pretty much all of them beat the market. I think maybe one didn't. But, you know, there are some funds that take a specifically risky stance. The best was Argonaut. They've got two funds. Both their funds were the best by quite some margin. You know, they had double-digit growth, uh, more than double-digit growth, to be honest. But those funds are very new. So there's not a track record to go, ah, you know, (laughs) the history shows they always do this. Uh, Secondly, they're very small. So that allow because they're new, they haven't built up. So the bigger you get, the harder it is to, you've got to, you know, you've got to keep diversifying and and one really good pick in a small fund (laughs) makes a lot a greater difference, I think. The Argonaut guys might say different, but nevertheless, they'll be happy to show what they've done and that their methodology has worked under these circumstances. But it's such an, it's such early days that that's why they're quite small. They're really building a track record before they truly go out to market and go hard. I mean, they are accepting funds, but I'm sure that they would, you know, before they really market it, they want to get a few more, you know, a bit more time under their belt. Nevertheless, they'll be enjoying this moment. Well, Mark, I can tell you I'm none too impressed with my super performance over the past year, and if I had any investments, I'm sure I'd be disappointed with them too. Regardless, going behind the scenes of the industry is fascinating at a time like this, and it's one of the most valuable things that we can provide our readers. To find out more, flick to the features section of our latest edition, or head to businessnews.com.au and scroll down to the special reports tab. Until we speak again, Mark, pleasure to have you here. The latest business news, delivered daily. Subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. For all the latest business news, visit businessnews.com.au. This business news podcast is supported by Hopgood Gannam Lawyers. Our knowledge and expertise has been delivering exceptional outcomes for nearly 50 years.